Happy Reformation Day <laughs> to the nerds in the house. All right. First, before we get there, can we just give a shout out to the two amazing, y'all are from Hamilton, right? All right. Riley and Kaya, would you, would y'all stand up and let us give a, give a big hand for you? Yeah. Looking so cool. Where's, oh, and there's Avery over there, and she's the third sister from Hamilton. Yes, and all of the kids in their amazing outfits. Y'all look awesome. So cool. Nice. I love it. Y'all look so good. That's, that is fun. Uh, I dressed up as, uh, as a dad today, all right? Going to Lowe's after this. Telling some jokes. All right. Oh, that was a dad joke. I'm in costume. We're good. All right. Um, today is Reformation Day. And uh, October 31st, every year, marks this moment in history. Uh, over 500 years ago, the year 1517, uh, a monk named Martin Luther sparked what is known today as the Protestant Reformation. And in this move of protest against abuses of power within the church, Martin Luther goes to the door of the church there in his community and nails on the door of that church what was called the 95 Theses. And the, uh, these 95 statements that he is calling out these abuses within the church, this act of protest. And though that was already stirring uh, in many other places within the church, and even though also we want to pause and acknowledge that as a figure, uh, he's a very flawed human being, and we want to acknowledge that as well. And yet we celebrate what God did in that moment. And what God sparked in his church in that moment. It was out of this heart of conviction to see the church return to its radical roots. One of the key protests against abuses of power within the church at that time had to do with the way that the church was manipulating a theology of salvation. And they were abusing People through spiritual abuse with this sense that if you gave a certain amount of money to the church, then it would secure salvation for people that you love. They were charging people for the assurance and peace of salvation. And that's not how it works. That is not how it works. You cannot buy what someone else has already paid for. And at the heart of the Protestant Reformation is this declaration that we echo here today that salvation is through Christ, through the life of Christ, the radical, loving life of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, which brings us forgiveness of our sins and the victorious resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Not only does he defeat sin, but he defeats death in his resurrection. And so we echo the themes and the passions and the call of the Protestant Reformation. And we say today that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we celebrate that 
Martin Luther didn't make that up. <clears throat> He's drawing that directly from the teachings of the New Testament and primarily from the letters of the Apostle Paul. And we stand in that tradition today and we celebrate that today. And you know that I cannot talk about Martin Luther without giving my very favorite Martin Luther quote. And if you're doing Love Chapel Hill bingo today, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this is like the center free space square, okay? Um, we talk about this so often. We talk about it so much that I recently uh, brought this up to a couple of friends and they like repeated this line to me with what I think was supposed to be an impression of me, <laughs> including hand motions. And that was a little too personal, okay? But also I'm like, okay, somebody's listening. Sweet, okay. But Martin Luther defined sin. You've heard us say this over and over again. Martin Luther defined sin as what? Anybody remember? There it is. As the heart curved inward on itself. That is sin. That is what sin is. The heart curved inward on itself. And anywhere you look through the expression of sin throughout history. That is what is happening all the way back to the fall. That is what is happening. The heart curving inward, closing in away from relationship with others and relationship with God and turning in on itself. And that's how Martin Luther defined sin. 200 years after him, another reformer in his own right named John Wesley defined holiness in the opposite way as the heart curved outward with love for God and others. That, by the way, was the hand motion that my friend did, okay? She was right, okay? But that's what holiness looks like. That's what sanctification looks like. That's what the love of Christ looks like in our lives. And John Wesley didn't make that up. He's drawing directly from Jesus, who sums up the entire teachings of the Scriptures with the great commandment. Two commands together, he says, that encompass all of the teachings of the law and the prophets together to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your heart curved outward in love for God, and to love others as yourself. A love for God will not allow you to keep your heart curved inward. It will move your heart outward in love for others. And so where we are today is talking about what it looks like to have that heart curved outward. We've been in this uh, series where we're talking about how to build a monastery. And today we're going to talk about mission and the importance of mission in forming this monastery within our souls. When you think about a monastery, uh, it's an image that often brings to mind this sense of deep communion with God. These people who are deeply uh, committed to deep communion with God. And so oftentimes they go away in this sense of escape from the culture around them in order to go deep into the heart of God in these set-apart spaces, monasteries. We're not asking anybody to do that. Instead, we think that the whole witness of the New Testament tells us to do the opposite, to go and to be engaged with the world around us, not escape from the world around us. But when we talk about building a monastery, we mean within our souls so that we become mobile monasteries, moving monasteries everywhere we go. 
we are embodying this deep intimacy and rootedness in Christ, but it's for the sake of the world around us. And we carry that with us everywhere we go, in every interaction, in every relationship that we're in. People are going to experience the overflow of what we are experiencing in our relationship with Jesus, shaped by the Holy Spirit, reconciled to the Father. We're using this quote, and you're going to keep hearing this for a long time. Uh, about 15 years ago is when I first uh, encountered this quote. It was from one of my professors in seminary. His name's Robert Mulholland. He's passed away now. Uh, but this is something that I haven't been able to get away from since then. I was reminded of it this summer, and we're coming back to it here. And it's this quote. It's these two questions together that's helping to drive what we're talking about here. The first question is, are you in the world for God? Or number two, are you in God for the world? Are you in the world for God or are you in God for the world? We're going to keep unpacking the distinction between those two. At first, it might be difficult to see the distinction, but we're really leaning into what it looks like to be in God for the world. And so as we've been talking about building this monastery within our souls, the first two walls of the monastery that we raised together, that we're constructing together, we talked about scripture and how scripture informs every other part of it. And then the second one that we talked about last week is prayer. And so while these two can often seem as deep internal um, kind of practices as we're digging in and rooting ourselves in the word as the word is teaching us what it looks like to pray and to live in communion with God. If we're not careful, we can focus so much on our own individual intimacy with God that this starts to cave in on itself. And that's not where we want to go. We want the heart curved outward. So today we're raising that third wall of the monastery and talking about mission, of what it means to be in God. Yes, deeply rooted in scripture, deeply rooted in prayer, yet we're in God for the world. Our hearts turned outward and the impact that flows out of us and into the world around us. So as we're talking about mission today, uh, our core text is going to come from John chapter 20. Um, and this is one of the core texts of the mission of the church all across the church. People consistently come back to this to help give us a definition of what it means to live on mission as the people of God and as the church of God in the world. And this comes from uh, Jesus's uh, right after Jesus's resurrection when he appears to his disciples again. So that's where we're going to be. And then we're going to read a couple of other, a few other passages as well that will help build some context around this passage. But our main passage today is going to be John chapter 20. Let's start with verse 19. And here's what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So what we have here is the same day as Jesus' resurrection, and they are the disciples are hiding away from the religious leaders because the religious leaders 
uh, have teamed up with the government of the time, the Roman Empire, and have conspired against Jesus. The religious establishment and the political establishment coming together to conspire against Jesus and putting Jesus to death. But now the rumors are spreading about the resurrection of Jesus. Mary Magdalene has witnessed Jesus resurrected. She's told the disciples and they're disturbed and disoriented by what she has to say. They're trying to make sense of this reality. And so it's in the middle of that that it says Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. Remember what happened to his hands and side. He has been crucified and now he's showing them the proof that it is him. He showed them his hands and side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Can you imagine this turn in the story? This person that you love so deeply that you walked with for three years, you've given your life to this person. You had so many hopes for what this was going to look like. And those hopes have been crushed and destroyed as you watched him crucified on the cross. And now you're disoriented by the rumors of his resurrection. Could this possibly be true? And now here he is standing in front of you. The proof that it is true. What was too good to be true is true and good. Just that true and just that good at the same time. And again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone of their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So you can sense this trajectory of mission as Jesus is commissioning his disciples right after his resurrection. This echoes what we've already seen. Actually, even though this is at the culmination of the ministry of Jesus in this resurrection moment, it echoes what we saw at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is calling his first disciples to follow him. Here's what it says. Uh, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, Gospel of Matthew. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we get in this moment, the calling of the disciples into this life of discipleship with Jesus. Come follow me, but also embedded in it. We're already getting this sense of mission. We're already getting this sense of commission that is coming for them. And in this original calling moment, Jesus also gives them their commission. He says, come follow me and I'm going to teach you what it looks like to go out and fish for people. So you can already see the mission starting to form right from the very beginning. Also later, 
in the teaching ministry of Jesus, he's asked about the kingdom of God. How are we going to know when the kingdom comes? What should we be looking for? Where's the kingdom going to show up? How will we know when it's here? And Jesus answers in this way in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Once on being asked, amen. Thank you. Once on being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus says. So we're beginning to see the empowering of how this mission is going to take place but also what the end result of this mission is going to look like. The kingdom of God established by Jesus and then empowered through us. What an amazing statement. The kingdom of God is within you, he says. How is that possible? Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. After his resurrection and Jesus is ascending back to heaven, he leaves his disciples with these words. Again, they're asking him about the kingdom coming. Is this the time when you're going to establish the kingdom now? Is the kingdom here? And Jesus says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on them. Not just on them, but to fill them from within to empower this mission. The kingdom of God is not something that is over there or over here. It is within you, Jesus says. And when the Holy Spirit fills you, you will be carriers of that kingdom. And everywhere you go, everywhere you go, you will carry that. And that kingdom will break out of your life and into the world around you. We're going to take the rest of our time today uh, to unpack just John 20. And so those other passages give us a sense of context around the mission of Jesus. But here we get this very clear statement about the mission of Jesus and how we are to participate and to join him in that mission. John chapter 20. Jesus, help us. As we dive into this, please speak your word clearly to us. We just want to hear from you. We want to hear your word clearly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we go through this passage, we're actually going to work our way through it backwards. Okay. And we're going to look at four key words that we find in this passage that help form uh, the context of the mission of Jesus in the world and of his people in the world. And so we're going to be moving through this backwards. Let's start with verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus makes this radical statement about forgiveness. And he puts right up front the reality that forgiveness, this message, this hope of forgiveness, the gospel of forgiveness, that Jesus is king. His kingdom is here. He has overthrown the powers of sin and death. And with all of that power and authority, what is he going to do with it? He's bringing forgiveness to us for our sins and bringing us into a reconciled relationship with God. But he's not stopping there. He's commissioning us to carry that out into the world. 
And so Jesus makes this powerful statement about forgiveness. This is good news. That's what the word gospel means. By the way, it means good news. The New Testament writers didn't make that word up. It already existed in in the culture at that time. Uh, It was a term that meant an announcement of good news normally used for Caesar. Normally used for an announcement from the Roman Empire. Good news. Caesar has conquered. Good news. Caesar is bringing peace. Yes, he's conquering you to do that, but peace is yours. Okay. So this was the way that they talked about the gospel. It was this announcement of good news. And Jesus is saying, here's the announcement of good news. You are forgiven. I am the king and the kingdom is here and the kingdom is within you. You are forgiven of your sins. You are brought into a reconciled relationship with God. And now you are sent out to live and embody the reality of this kingdom in the world. And to carry this hope of salvation everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. This is incredible news. Immediately following crucifixion and resurrection. In the wake of that triumph. Jesus steps into a room full of people who failed him. His disciples failed him when he needed them the most. Out of all their boasting of, I will never turn my back on you, Jesus. I don't care if it costs me my life. I won't abandon you, Jesus. They all failed him. And in that moment, Jesus steps into this room full of people who failed him. And his pronouncement is, Forgiveness, forgiveness, and bringing them into that reconciled relationship with him. What in the world? This is a proclamation of the character of God. This shows us the character and reveals the driving heart behind Jesus' journey to the cross in the first place. Love. Love is who he is is. It's not just something that he does. It's at the core of his character. He is love. Before humanity ever existed, before anything in creation existed, God is pre-existent and God pre-exists as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is relationship with himself. Therefore, he is able to love because he is relationship. And he is love. It's at the core of his character. It is who he is. It's the driving force. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 tells us this. God is love. All throughout the scriptures and all throughout the culture around us, we hear God loves you. God loves you. And sometimes we think that's trite. And sometimes we think that's weak. There is nothing weak about the love of God. Look at the cross and tell me that the love of God is a weak statement. There is nothing weak or watered down about the love of God. He loves you. It's one of the first things you'll ever hear about him, that he loves you. It'll be the last thing you ever understand about him. How could and why would the God of the universe love me? What could I possibly do to deserve that? How could I ever earn that or live up to that? And that's the beauty of it. Nothing. 
you haven't done anything to deserve it and you never could. And that's part of the compelling beauty of this love. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. Christ died for us because of his love for us. You didn't do anything to deserve it, so you can't do anything to lose it. You didn't do anything to deserve it, so you can't do anything to lose it. He loves you not because of anything that you've done. He loves you because that's who He is. He is love. We were prodigals with no road home, and He embarked on a rescue mission to come and save us and bring us back into reconciled relationship because he's love. There's no place that this love is afraid to go. There is no one beyond his reach. This love has the courage to cross every line, to climb every wall. It fought for us to hell and back and not even the grave, not even the grave could hold him down. He is love. He does not ration it. He doesn't protect his love. He pours it out in radical extravagance. It's the twist we never could have imagined. What we often call here the great reversal. The story turning on its head. We thought for certain it was going one way and he shocks us with the way the story turns out. What could we ever do to deserve it? Nothing. Nothing. That's part of what's being celebrated on this day. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's through Him. It's through Him. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And He empowers you to carry that out into the world. This is an interesting statement that Jesus makes about forgiving, where He says, if you forgive people, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive people, they're not forgiven. And some people are like, whoa, that's way too much. And others of y'all are like, I think I can handle this. <laughs> Maybe give me a little more responsibility than that. Jesus isn't telling us that we possess some kind of divine power to grant people the forgiveness of God. He's already purchased that. But what Jesus is saying in this moment is he is giving us this commission to go and carry this message of forgiveness. And how will people hear it? How will people encounter it if you don't go? If you don't recognize the reality of the mission and if you don't live into that mission. And there are people all around us every day that are dying for this kind of hope to hear this. They're longing for it. And he's saying, I have empowered you with this responsibility. And I've empowered you with the possibility of it. Because the kingdom is within you. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills you, you will be my witnesses sent out. Everywhere you go to live this. The Reformation reminds us that it's not up to the church and it's certainly not up to any clergy person, thank you Jesus, to determine people's forgiveness of sins. There is one mediator and his name is Jesus. And it's Jesus who brings us into salvation that is not mediated by the church. And the church doesn't get to make that call. The Reformation reminds us 
It's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But in this challenge from Jesus, we recognize that it's not for you alone. You alone isn't one of the ones that makes it in there, all right? It's not for you alone. You've received grace. Now, who's next? You've received grace. Now, who's next? Who's next in line for this radical forgiveness of Jesus? So we bear witness to this hope of Jesus in this world. What a shocking and disruptive hope that is. Amen. He's excited about it. It's Ruby, right? Isn't, isn't that Ruby? Hope's dog Ruby. All right. Thank you, Ruby. Back me up. I love it. In these words of forgiveness that Jesus offers right here, right off of the crucifixion, right off of the resurrection, we clearly see that God's conquering victory in the resurrection, overcoming sin, overcoming death, God's conquering victory in the resurrection unleashes a reign of grace and redemption and forgiveness into the world. Not in retribution. That's what we think he would go and do. Pay everybody back who did him wrong. But it's not in retribution. It's in redemption. And he's bringing us all into this with him. He doesn't destroy his enemies. <coughs> I'm so sorry. <coughs> Sorry, everybody. We had a little sickness in our house this week. Okay, negative tests. Negative tests. I realized, Ryan was telling me that earlier. I realized I should probably lead with that <laughs> before talking about sickness. All right, so I apologize. But if I keep my distance and wear a mask today, that's why, all right? Just don't want any extra germs. Which also makes us all raise our eyebrows at this moment in the story today where Jesus breathes on his disciples. <laughs> He's good, all right? But Jesus, in this redemption victory, he doesn't use his victory to destroy his enemies. He redeems them. He redeems them, starting with that room full of traitors and deniers and doubters that he called his best friends. That's where he started with this message. Last week, we talked about uh, this sermon in three words, pray the Psalms. And uh, we talked about how the Psalms teach us how to pray. Scripture teaches us how to pray. And if we would pray the Psalms every day, if we would, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Bob, will you come read my notes for me? <laughs> so sorry, buddy. <coughs> You're about to get an early release, okay? <coughs> and y'all are like, yeah, keep going. Keep coughing. <coughs> but if we will pray the Psalms, they will teach us to pray in ways that maybe we don't, aren't able to pray even ourselves. We see the full range of human emotion and experience through the Psalms, grief, sorrow, anger at others and at God. <coughs> we see hope, we see joy, we see worship. And all throughout the Psalms, we see that. So the Psalms teach us what it looks like to praise and to lament at the same time. And the reality of that in the world that we live in and in our own 
lives. The Psalms are like hiking trails into the heart of God. Somebody else has already carved these out. They've mapped them out for us. Someone else has been there. And if you're looking at the forest and it just seems too intimidating to start making your way through it, which often that's how prayer feels to us, this massive intimidation. Where do I even start? Then the Psalms say, here's a path. Start walking here. This will teach you. This will guide you. This will walk with you. And you can learn that way. The Psalms are for people who are longing to go deeper in prayer or for those who don't even know how to start. For people who feel like God is silent or for others who feel like they want to be silent towards God and they can't even bring themselves to speak to him. I've been in that place myself. I understand that. But the Psalms speak for us when we don't have words to say and the Psalms pray for us. And so last week, the challenge, and if, if you want to jump in with us, it'll be pretty easy to catch up. Uh, but we're praying, or you can start today, all right? It starts for you today. Uh, praying one psalm a day. And for those who have been participating in that, anybody else been slightly bothered by the amount of prayer in the psalms about God bringing down judgment on our enemies? Anybody else? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Okay, all right. I'm going to let them pray for me. This isn't me, Lord. I'm not saying this. That's, that's, that's them. And that's, that's, that's bothering. As you go through the Psalms, you'll see that over and over again. And we do have to realize that this is another person's experience with God that they are writing. It's inspired by the Spirit, but it's coming through the experience of another person. So we have to realize that. The other thing that we have to realize is that the psalmists are writing on that side of the arrival of Jesus. And the arrival of Jesus changes everything about the way we see everything, including our enemies, including even our enemies. So actually, in and of ourselves, it's completely natural for us to play God, pray, God, punish that person because they hurt me. God, take that person out because they're against me. God, move against that person. God, judge that person because you know they deserve to be judged. And that's actually a natural place for us to be. What's shocking and unnatural is what Jesus challenges us to do in this. To instead pray for our enemies and instead preach forgiveness and live forgiveness. The poets in the Psalms don't have the full shocking picture yet. The Spirit is inspiring them of this vision of the King who is coming, but they haven't seen the full picture yet. And they cannot even imagine that God would do something better than punish His enemies, that He would save them, that He would rescue them, that He would forgive them, that He would heal them, that He would redeem them. And Jesus says, this is what you're called into this next verse. I'll, I'll move through these words quickly here, but this next word that we're going to look at again, moving backwards. So now we're moving back to verse 21 and the key word of sent. Jesus makes this powerful statement as the father sent me. So now I am sending you. What a progression to stand in 
for us. For Jesus to say, as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is not just some compelling vision of some far off future, but it has been dragged into the present and has been planted within every single one of us. It's not a figment of our hope to chase over there or over here. It's within you. It's within you. But here's a warning. It will not want to stay within you. The kingdom of God is restless. And the kingdom of God is always looking for an exit strategy out of your life and into the world around you. It wants to flow out of you through the everyday ordinary actions of your life. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that is is possible. It rolls out beneath your feet with every step you take, everywhere you go. This good news mission isn't only empowered by God's kingdom within us, but by God himself within us. The Holy Spirit filling us and flowing out of us, commissioning us and sending us into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into our homes, into our apartment buildings, into our dorms, into our shelters, our labs, our classrooms, our break rooms, our board rooms, our living rooms, to love with the heart of Jesus through every small action, word, gesture, every small moment becoming an invitation to others around us to come and see, to come and follow, and to be transformed in the same way that we've been transformed. Move one verse back. The key word in this verse is the word scars. And so in this moment, Jesus shows his scars to his disciples. And as we're talking about this and, and talking about how we can embody the mission of Jesus in the world, it might be tempting for us to think that we are somehow disqualified. That because of our own lives, we are disqualified from participating in the mission of Jesus. That the scars that we carry, the turns in our story, if you knew my scars, there's no way that you'd be inviting me into this mission. But look what Jesus shows his disciples in that moment. His scars. Jesus reveals his scars and it's part of the proof to them of who he is. And the reality of what he's come through. And we learn in the scriptures, in the book of Revelation, that Jesus still carries those scars now. As John catches a glimpse of the future in, the Re in Revelation and catches a glimpse of Jesus, he's told, behold, the Lion of Judah, and he expects to see some strong conquering lion on the throne, but instead he looks and he sees what? A lamb that was slain. When he looks for the lion, instead he sees a lamb that has been sacrificed, echoing Jewish history and the sacrificial practice there that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's still in his victory and in his triumph. He still is bearing his scars. Jesus has just raised himself from the dead. Jesus has just come back from the dead. Jesus has just overcome crucifixion. If you can do that, then couldn't you remove your own scars? Couldn't you do away 
with your own scars? Couldn't you erase them? If you can overcome the power of the grave, couldn't you also overcome the effects of the crucifixion? But Jesus intentionally continues to bear his scars for us to see, for us to know that it's him. It's a declaration of his love for us and his power to heal us. He will not turn away. He will not turn his face away from your scars. You can be completely open and honest with him. Bring your whole self to him. He will not turn away from it. In fact, instead, he'll show you his own. And he'll invite you to trace the storyline of redemption and remind you what he has endured, what he has overcome, and that the root of it all is his love. He is what the author Henry Nouwen has called the wounded healer. He's not scared away by wounded people because he is one. He is one. The last word here, verse 19, is the way this whole passage starts, is the word peace. Jesus steps into this room of his disciples, this room of people who've been rocked by grief, confusion, fear, disruption, doubt. And he speaks his first word, peace. He speaks peace into that room. He speaks the hope of redemption. He speaks forgiveness and healing. And much like that room, this community around us and the whole world around us, particularly our own community, is experiencing that same kind of disruption, that same kind of disillusionment and despair. We're reeling from it in so many ways. But Jesus commissions us to go and do the same everywhere we go, to carry his peace. It doesn't mean everything is just perfectly put together. He says, I'm still wearing my scars. You can wear yours too. But he empowers us through the kingdom within us, through the Holy Spirit filling us and flowing out of us to carry his kingdom everywhere we go. He's inviting us to be in him, but not just for the sake of ourselves, to be in God for the world. And he's sending us out, empowered with that. People around us, our friends around us, they need good news. And we have it. So go and live it. I'm going to invite Justin to come and to lead us in communion. And as Justin is coming, I just want to close with this last word of blessing. As we're ending our last day here, our last Sunday here in the Arboretum. This has been a beautiful space for us. I've loved this so much. I'm so grateful for this space. And you guys were able to get started here before I was able to join back with you this summer. I have loved this. It's such a beautiful space. And I think it says so much about who God wants us to be in this community as well. All around us in this Arboretum, the activity of our community and the university is going on. But right here, tucked away in the soul of our community is this place of peace. And I think Jesus is commissioning us to go, empowered in his mission, to go and to be this kind of place everywhere we go. That as we move through 
the community, so much activity going on around us. And yet we carry within us this place of peace everywhere we go, right in the thick of it, right in the middle of it all. Jesus empowers us and he commissions us to go and to live and embody his mission in the world, to be in God for the world. Amen.